Do you ever stop and think about how the decisions you've made have brought you to where you are? Do you ever stop and think about how the decisions you've made have brought you to where you are? All of our stories are made up of thousands of little decisions with a few big ones mixed in that have led us to where we are. Just think about all the decisions that you've made. And you may be thinking of all the bad ones, but think about all the good ones. Or all the seemingly inconsequential ones. Think about all the decisions that you've made to bring you to where you are right now. And think about all the decisions that had to be made for you to be, uh, that were made even without you knowing they were made to bring you to where you are right now. Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, I don't know, millions of decisions had to be made to bring you to that pew right there, right now. It's kind of an overwhelming thought, isn't it? There are lots of decisions that were made that we didn't even know about that brought us where we are. For example, in my life, I think about the couple that my grandmother told me about before she died and went to be with Jesus. My grandmother told me that the couple, uh, there was a couple who let her and my grandfather stay in their garage apartment as newlyweds, and that this couple who owned the garage apartment invited them to church, and through that invitation, they heard the gospel, believed, and were saved, and have passed down a, a legacy of gospel faithfulness in our family. What if that family wouldn't have invited them to church? Well, you might say, well, there might have been someone else. Sure, there might have been lots of someone else's, but there might not have been. Do you ever think about how the decisions you've made or the decisions that have been made for you have brought you to where you are right now? Our lives are the result of a complex web of decisions that we've made and that have been made for us, that have brought us right where we are. Russell Moore in his book, Adopted for Life, thank you, Jay, for praying for foster care kids and orphans and adoption. Um, if you want to read more on that, read Adopted for Life, Russell Moore. It's infused with gospel truth and lots of wisdom on this topic. He says, though, in, in, in Adopted for Life, Moore says, quote, All of human history is like that, this web of decisions that I'm describing. All of human history is like that. He says, Providence moves forward mysteriously as God works through Billions of seemingly inconsequential decisions, end quote. One writer points out how God's mysterious providence played out in the life of Joseph. I found this to be too interesting not to share, so let me share it with you. He says, quote, if one Egyptian tailor hadn't cheated on the threads of Joseph's mantle. Do you know what a mantle is? I had to look this up. It's not the thing over your fireplace. It's like a cloak. I didn't know that. Maybe you did. So if one Egyptian tailor hadn't cheated on the threads of Joseph's cloak, Potiphar's wife would never have been able to tear it, present it as evidence to Potiphar that Joseph attacked her, gotten him thrown in prison, and let him be in a position to interpret Pharaoh's dream, win his confidence, advise him to store seven years of grain, save his family, the 70 original Jews from whom Jesus came, 
We owe our salvation to a cheap Egyptian tailor. <laughs> End quote. Imagine. Imagine had Joseph's cloak not torn at that fateful moment. Imagine the billions more says of decisions, most of which we don't even know about, that have happened to bring us where we are. This idea, this, this thing that I'm talking about, is, and, and Moore has already said, it's called providence. Uh, this idea that God is in control of weaving together every decision and everything that happens in the universe is called providence. It's not a word that you find in the Bible, but neither is the Trinity. But the truth is found on every page. In his book titled Providence, Piper defines providence this way. He just simply calls providence God's purposeful sovereignty. His purposeful, purposeful sovereignty. You see, sovereignty simply means that God has the right and the power to do whatever He wants. Sovereignty means He's like a king. He, he, can, he can do, uh, He has the ability to do, and He has the right to do anything because He's king. That's what it means to be king. He can do anything that He wants. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. If God wants to do something, He does it. If He doesn't, He doesn't. But providence is a biblical idea that takes the idea of sovereignty a step further. Providence says that God has designs in all that He does. That God has goals in all that He does. It's purposeful sovereignty. God isn't only powerful. God is also wise. The Bible says He has purposes or plans and designs in all that He does. Isaiah 46.10, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty, purposeful action in all that happens in the universe and in our lives. This means, brothers and sisters, before we even get into the text, let me encourage you that this biblical truth means that the world is not fundamentally idiotic. You're like, well, hold on a second, John. <laughs> I've been watching the news this week. The world is not fundamentally or ultimately idiotic. It may appear to be run by chaos. It may appear to be run by an absentee landlord. But the Bible teaches us that every single thing that happens in the world happens according to a plan. There are no accidents in God's universe. Everything happens according to a plan, namely God's plan, to accomplish His purposes or promises. And that brings us to Genesis 24. So if you have a Bible, please do find Genesis 24. In Genesis 24, we're going to see an amazing example of God's providence. Quick recap to catch us up to where we're at in Genesis 24. God has promised Abraham many descendants, and, and he has Ishmael, but he's not the son of promise because he was had through Hagar. Then he has Isaac with Sarah. Sarah dies, and Isaac is left as a single man around the age of 40 with no wife and no children. By the time we get to chapter 24, there's only old Abraham and um, Isaac who's wifeless. There's no longer a mother in what would become the nation of Israel. 
So Abraham surveys the situation in this chapter. He's going to act wisely and decisively, sending his most trusted servant on a mission to get a wife for Isaac. And that servant will return with this young lady named Rebecca. I want you to look at the very last verse of chapter 24. It'll help set the context for us. 2467. <laughs> you heard right. There's 67 verses in this chapter. And we will be reading all of them. Praise the Lord. Look at verse 67. Then Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into the tent of Sarah, his mother. Remember, Sarah's dead. And took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted, comforted after his mother's death. So this verse links this chapter back to chapter 23, um, where Sarah died. Last week we saw Sarah died. So this narrative begins with Sarah's tent being empty, but it's going to end with Sarah's tent being occupied by a new mother for Israel, namely Rebekah. But between these bookends, the way we get from empty tent to full tent, no mother in Israel to mother in Israel is providence. God's providence is going to act in some incredible ways, incredible ways to get this servant of Abraham to a far land to get this bride God has appointed, keyword appointed for Isaac. Here's the main idea of this chapter and thus the main idea of this sermon. The main idea that we're going to see in Genesis 24 is that God's providence ensures the accomplishment of God's promises. Providence ensures the accomplishment of God's promises. Providence accomplishes promises. So we're going to break the chapter into four pieces. Look at them each one at a time. One at a time. Here they are. I'll give them to you all up front and then we'll get through the text bit by bit. First, we'll see a wise plan in verses 1 through 9. A wise plan, 1 through 9. Second, we'll see a providential encounter, 10 through 28. A providential encounter, 10 through 28. Third, we'll see a long speech, 29 through 49, verses 29 through 49, a long speech. And then fourthly, we'll see a continuing covenant, 50 through 67, a continuing covenant, 50 through 67. So wise plan, providential encounter, long speech, continuing covenant. Number one, we'll see a wise plan, verses 1 through 9, Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. 
But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. A wise plan. The issue this narrative is seeking to resolve is the continuation of the seed of Abraham. Remember, Sarah's dead. Isaac doesn't have a wife. How will the seed of Abraham continue? More specifically, how will the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent continue, as was promised in Genesis 3.15? Now, as we've been studying in Genesis, you might remember several times where God told Abraham exactly what to do. He gave him clear marching orders. Well, this is not one of those times. He doesn't tell Abraham what to do. Rather, Abraham devises a plan on his own, a plan that will get Isaac a wife. But his plan is in line with the Word of God. His plan isn't contrary to the Word of God. It's in line with the Word of God. And his plan is threefold. You might, you might have picked this up. Here's the plan. Isaac has to have a wife. She must not be from the Canaanites. And Isaac can't return to Mesopotamia or, or Abraham's homeland. So Isaac needs a wife. She can't be a Canaanite woman. And Isaac can't go back to Mesopotamia. These weren't, again, these weren't direct commands from God. They were inferred, though, from things that God had told Abraham. For example, God didn't command Isaac to marry. Nowhere in the text do we have a command that Isaac must marry. But he does tell, God does tell Abraham that Isaac, or excuse me, that he, Abraham, will be a great nation, that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars and the sand on the seashore. So Abraham naturally understandably deduces from this fact that his son, this promised son, needs to have a wife. Because if he doesn't have a wife, he's not going to have children. If there are any children, then there's not going to be a great nation or descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. So Isaac needs a wife. Secondly, God didn't tell Abraham to not take a wife from the Canaanites. He didn't command that. But Abraham likely remembered that God had cursed Canaan, Noah's grandson, back in chapter 9. That in chapter 15, God said that the Amorites, or the people living in the land of Canaan, were marked off for judgment because of their sin. Even in a, a couple weeks ago, or excuse me, last week, we saw that Abraham didn't want to uh, just use a part of the Hittites' land or use a burial plot of the Hittites. He wanted to have his own land. He didn't want to join with the Hittites or these people in the land of Canaan in any way. So knowing these things about the Canaanites surely gave Abraham great pause before he started forming marriage alliances with people who lived around him. So while God didn't tell Abraham exactly or explicitly to not take a wife or his son from the Canaanites, Abraham had been so shaped by the Word of God that he knew what to do. And then thirdly, God didn't tell Abraham to make Isaac stay in the land of Canaan. That command's not in here, in this, in this narrative. But Abraham was... So adamant on this point. Did you notice that there in verse 6? Abraham says to the servant, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Or back to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor, his brother. Verse 8, he says it again. The end of verse 8. Only you must not take my son there. Why would Abraham feel this way? Why would he feel so strongly about Isaac staying in the land of Canaan and not going back to his homeland? Abraham's homeland. Because God had called Abraham out of that land and promised him a new land to give him the land of Canaan. To go back there would be to disbelieve God's promises, would be 
to disbelieve his power to fulfill them. It would be like giving up, throwing in the towel, saying, well, God, it was, this was nice for Abraham, but Isaac's going to continue this line back where Abraham came from because we're, we're basically landless still after one generation. So Isaac, he says, must not leave the land of promise. So Abraham has this threefold planned, uh, plan. Um, Isaac needs a wife. She can't be Canaanite. And Isaac can't go back to where Abraham is from. All of these commands that Isaac, excuse me, Abraham gave to the servant weren't given to Abraham by God. But they were based on the trajectories of God's word to Abraham. These trajectories merged into a single decision. Someone besides Isaac must leave Canaan to find a wife for Isaac. So Abraham doesn't get a command from God, but he seems to just know what's the best thing to do. Don't you love it when this happens in your life? And you might be thinking, John, this rarely happens in my life. Well, let me encourage you just for a few moments to do something. Know your Bible really, really well. Because let's be honest, most of the decisions we have to make aren't in the Bible, are they? But you know what is in the Bible? God's wisdom. God's plan. God's promises. So you might be reading the Bible, you know, and really wanting a wife or a husband or like a new job or a better job. <laughs> and, and you're reading your Bible. You're like, there's nothing in here about who I'm supposed to marry. Well, yeah, <laughs> this book wasn't written, you know, to show you who your wife is going to be, your husband's going to be. But you know what the Bible does say? It says a lot about what marriage is. It says a lot about what a covenant relationship looks like. It, it, it has a lot to say about work, how we should work, things about laziness, things to avoid in work. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about money. It's not going to lay out your personal budget for you, but it has a whole lot to say about how you handle the things that God gives you, things like generosity, sacrifice, joyful giving, helping others in need. That's all over the Bible. I think sometimes we... We want, we want the Bible to do things God never intended it to do. Rather than just immersing our lives with it. And then just making decisions that line up with His wisdom as best we can. And guys, sometimes we're not going to get it right. Amen? Amen. Sometimes we're just not going to get it right. We're going to have regrets. But I do think that the more we immerse ourselves with the trajectories of God's Word, with His promises and His wisdom and His plan, I think the more wisdom that we'll gain and the better decisions we'll make. And, and look, sometimes we'll, sometimes we'll be faced with a decision and we're reading, we're praying, we're reading, we're praying, we're talking to people, we're trying to get all this feedback. I hope you're doing that. If you're just making a decision by yourself, okay, you're signing up for bad decisions, okay? Surround yourself with godly counselors, prayer, Bible, then make your... But sometimes, sometimes the decision still just doesn't seem to appear very clear, does it? Or here's the best. Here's my favorite. My favorite, I mean not favorite. When there are like two really good options <laughs> and you just have to pick one and you're putting out the fleece, you're, you're waiting for God to speak audibly to you, things He's never promised to do. Trusting the Lord means that sometimes we just need to make a decision. Just make a decision. You know, get off our tail. 
get off our blessed assurance. <laughs> That's one of my professors used to say. And just make a decision, right? Step into it and trust the Lord. Abraham doesn't receive direct commands from God on what he should do. But he knows the trajectory of God's plan. He knows God's promises. So he makes a decisive and wise decision accordingly. He's so confident in his plan, even though there's this objection from his servant, that he says in verse 7, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And then verse 8, But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from my oath. So, trusting the Lord doesn't mean don't have a backup plan. It doesn't mean, you know, just put all your eggs in one basket. Interestingly, though, his faith is so strong that he says the angel of the Lord will go before this servant. He believes that not only is the Lord going to work out his promises, the Lord is going to send his presence to make sure that it happens. The angel of the Lord will go before you. Brothers and sisters, praise God he sends his angels before us. Lord knows how many stupid decisions we would have made had he not sent his angels, sent his angels before us. Guarding us, protecting us, guiding us, helping us. So we've seen this wise plan, number one. Number two, we'll see a providential encounter. A providential encounter, verses 10 through 28. Verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water, at the time of evening, time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcal, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her, with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will... Draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, 
who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. A providential encounter. So the servant arrives at the city of Nahor. He begins watering his camels and he begins praying. In his prayer, he asks for a specific sign from God. Namely, that the woman he asked for a drink from would also water his camels. Why does he add, add that last little bit about watering the camels? It's likely because he wants to find a wife for Isaac who's a servant-hearted, hospitable woman who wants, like Abraham, wants to quickly show hospitality to strangers. Remember Abraham showing hospitality to strangers back in chapter 18? You might have heard, noticed that word, was it verse 20, or excuse me, 18? Drink, my Lord, and she quickly let her jar down. In verse 20 again, so she quickly emptied her jar and ran again to the well to draw more water. She's doing this in haste. This is what Abraham did with the strangers who came to visit him. She is, is like Abraham. She has a, a passion to serve a complete stranger. <laughs> she doesn't know this guy, but she's quick to want to serve him and help him. Because she's servant-hearted. She sees others as opportunities for ministry, not opportunities for self-promotion. The servant uses a word in his prayer, though. Look at verse 14. This word really sets the context for all that's happening in this passage. The word in verse 14 is appointed. Let her be the one whom you, Lord, have appointed for your servant Isaac. Then he repeats this word, and when he repeats this story in verse 44. So the servant believes that the Lord has already selected or prearranged a wife for Isaac. Appointed. Lord, let the one who gives me a drink, let the one who gives water to all my camels, let her, let her be the one that you've already chosen to be Isaac's wife back home. You've selected her. I trust. He has such a high view of providence that he knows. He knows because he prays that God has already selected this woman. He's already arranged who this wife will be. So he prays, Lord, let the one that you've chosen be the one who comes and does this. Now, by the way, guys, I don't know if this is the best dating strategy. You know, we could talk later whether you should put out these kinds of tests for the Lord. On, you know, let the girl who talks to me after church be the one who, well, maybe you should go talk to a girl after church. That would be the first step instead of waiting for her to come talk to you. Amen. This servant has an incredibly high view of God's providence in the world. Let her be the one whom you have appointed this prayer shows us that the providence of God is the focus of this whole story. God already has this planned out. And the servant is just living out that plan. Verse 15 says that Rebecca arrives before the servants even finished praying. Now, it's only us, the readers, not the servant, who at this point know that this is Rebecca. The servant doesn't know her name, doesn't know her family until she tells him later. Moses is telling us from the start 
that the Lord has answered the servant's prayer. Moses, the narrator, is sacrificing narrative suspense. Why? For the sake of his main point. Namely, that God has providentially provided Rebekah for Isaac, even before the servant knows it. The rest of the story only confirms what we learn here, that this indeed is the wife God has prepared for Isaac. So it's almost like Moses can't wait to tell us, the reader, what God is doing. The servant doesn't know yet. He'll learn in just a moment. But we know right off the bat there in verse 15, before he'd finished speaking, Rebekah, this one from Abraham's kin, his brother Nahor, the Narrator Moses is trying to tell us from the beginning that this is God answering the prayer before the servant even knows that he's answering the prayer. Narrator Moses has organized this material in such a way to emphasize God's providence and also to emphasize the servant's response to that providence. Do you notice how he responded down in verse 26? Once he learns who she is, whose family she's from, that they have room for him to stay. And in verse 26, the man, the servant, bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Moses wants to show us not only that providence is the main point, but how to respond properly to providence. This man bows and worships and prays when he realizes that God's plan is, in, is the one guiding these events. This servant is a model for how we should respond to the work of God. He bowed his head, namely humility. He worshiped. He blessed the Lord. He acknowledged that this success came from God and not his own plans. You see, success inflates men of the world, but success humbles the man of God. The servant's first thought is for God, then for his master, and then only for himself after that. I love what commentator Derek Kidner says. He says, this servant is one of the most attractive minor characters of the Bible. I agree. We, we might pick other you know, characters of the Bible to be our favorite. No one ever picks this guy. We don't even know for sure who he is, though he might be Ele Eleazar. Kidner goes on. Kidner says he's, he's one of the most attractive minor characters of the Bible with his quiet good sense, his piety and faith, his devotion to his employer. <laughs> Does that mark you, friends? <laughs> his devotion to his employer and his firmness in seeing the matter through. If he is, Kidner says, if he is Eleazar, chapter 15, his loyalty is all the finer in serving the heir who has displaced him. In other words, if there were no Isaac, Eleazar gets everything that Abraham has. But there is an Isaac. So if this is Eleazar, he's self-sacrificing to serve the son that in a sense took his place. And then Kidner concludes, this servant is almost as a John the Baptist to his master. He's pointing away from himself. He's pointing to his master's God. This doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in Abraham's God. He's just saying that the, the God of Abraham, he's the one who's running the show here. He's the one who's keeping his promises. He's pointing away from himself like any humble Christ follower would, like John the Baptist did. 
pointed away from himself to someone greater, to someone more noble. The servant is committed to Abraham, to Abraham's God. He believes that Abraham's God is big enough and strong enough and wise enough to work all things together for good for those who love God. I love, just quickly, that this servant, even though he had that objection back in verse 5, you know, where he's like, what if she doesn't want to come with me? Fair question, right? (laughs) You want me to travel 400 miles to get this wife? Well, what if she doesn't want to come? Do I need to come and then take Isaac back with me? He asked that because verse 1 says, Abraham is very old, advanced in years, meaning he's about to die. So he's asking, hey, Abraham, when you die, do you want me to take Isaac back to your land so he can find a wife there? Abraham's like, no, don't do that. Don't do that at all. But this servant believes that Abraham's God is so big that he's able to orchestrate a 400-mile journey uh, so that it ends at just the right spot, at just the right time, so that just the right girl comes out who God has already prepared to be Isaac's wife. This servant has a very high view of the providence of God. So high that he's willing to travel across the world in service of his master. I wonder if your view of providence is that high that would lead you to do something that might not make sense to all of your friends or family members. Something that seems a bit extraordinary. Is your view of God's providence over every detail of your life so strong that you'll trust God with any journey that he leads you into for his sake? So we've seen a providential encounter, a wise plan, a providential encounter. Now, number three, a long speech. You've been warned. This is a long speech. This is the longest speech in Genesis. This is the longest chapter in Genesis. Number three, this providential encounter leads to this long speech by the servant to Rebecca's family. We'll pick it up in verse 29, 29 through 49. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. Verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house, to my clan, take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan, and if they will not give you to give her to you, you will be free from my oath. 
I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water in your jar to drink, and who, sh who will say to me, drink, and I will dr draw for your camels. Also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. 45, before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So before this really long speech starts in verse 34, there's this interesting detail in verse 30. Rebecca has a brother, his name is Laban. We're going to meet him later in Genesis. And Moses, being the master storyteller that he is, adds this detail in verse 30. He says, Laban, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on Rebecca's arms and heard the words, uh, words of Rebecca, his sister, then he goes out to see the servant. So he's compelled to go to the servant. Why? Not so much for what he said, not so much for what Rebecca is reporting, but because he's seen some pretty nice jewelry. He knows that this man that his sister has met is wealthy, and he'd like a little piece of that. Laban, as we'll learn later, is a selfish, cunning, deceitful, materialistic man. Moses is already hinting at that right here in this narrative. Now, why is this long speech here? You, you notice that there's really not a lot of new information here. So I don't have to do a lot of explanation on this text. It's really just a recounting of what already has happened. But notice what the servant did. As soon as he comes into Rebecca's house, he doesn't, he doesn't come with some grandiose scheme. He doesn't come with fine words of flattery. There's no flattery here. There's no pressure. There's no arm twisting. There's no deceitfulness. The servant merely comes to this dinner party with Rebecca's family. He says, hey, I made this oath with my master. Um, Abraham really believes the Lord is going to provide a wife for his son. And I believe my, my master Abraham. And the Lord has led me to your sister and daughter, Rebecca, out here at the well. And so I'm here to ask if she'll come back with me to be a wife for Isaac. There's no pleading. There's no pressure. There's no flattery. It's simple statements of fact. And that's instructive for us because it means that when it comes to our lives, when we're dealing with one another and in the world, with our spouses and with our children, flattery and arm twisting and, you know, over... I'm a preacher, so I'm prone to hyperbole or overstatement. I get that. But if it's meant to deceive or to mislead, there's no place for that. A plain statement of the facts will do. Plain speaking is good. That's all this man is doing. He's plainly telling this family what God has done, how God has providentially led him to Rebekah. All of this means 
that God is the center of this conversation. This, this servant isn't like, guys, can you believe how awesome I am? I mean, just look at how I landed at the right place at the, li- at the right time. My flights were all on time. My, baggage, my, lag- my baggage was there, easy for me to say. My, my baggage was there. I, I was right there, right on time. Look what I did. He doesn't do any of that. He gives all the credit to God. He's making it plain to these people that God is the one guiding these events. Now this leads us into number four, the last section of this chapter, a continuing covenant. So we've seen a wise plan, a providential encounter, and a long speech. Now number four, the chapter ends by Rebecca's brother and father agreeing that God is the one leading these events and that the covenant must continue through her. So verse 50 through the end. 24:50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. and Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camel's and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from the Er Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to her servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So this last section of the chapter shows us, first, that Rebekah's brother and father agree that God is indeed leading these events. Look at verse 50. They Say, this thing has come from the Lord. Verse 51, they even say, may it be as the Lord has spoken. But remember from earlier, the the Lord actually didn't command any of this to happen. But they're so convinced that this is God's hand at work that they say the Lord has spoken this thing into existence. They agree to let her return with the servant, Mary Isaac. Perhaps never see her again. 
God answers, God's answer to the servant's prayer leads the servant to pray again. Verse 52, Abraham's servant, when he heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Have you noticed how often the servant has prayed during this passage? 12 through 14, 26 through 27, here again for a third time, verse 52. Some may notice, some, some, may, some may think that providence, this idea that God is, is in control of every decision in the world, somehow negates prayer. That providence cancels prayer. Why should we pray, you, you might ask. And this is a great question, by the way. I hope you're thinking this way. Why should we pray if God is already in control of all the decisions that are going to happen? It's a great question. It's a great, great question. Well, I would encourage you to think about an engineer. Some of you are that. Or an architect. Or a builder of any kind. Think about what they do. They, they come up with a, an end goal, an end product, an end design. They put it on paper. Probably not on paper. Probably on some kind of program, right? They, they put the end design there. But they don't stop there. Either they themselves or them with a team then come up with the steps that need to happen to get that thing brought into reality, right? In other words, it's not enough for an engineer just to come up with a great design and just let it float off into the ether world of the internet. Any good engineer, designer, builder, architect knows that a good plan includes the means that will accomplish the plan. The best engineers are good at not just crafting the, the, the end goal, but also the means to that end. And God is no different. He has the end goal planned and every step along the way. Theologians often say it like this. God plans the ends and the means. God is a God of ends. He has one grand vision for the world, for the universe, namely the exaltation of Christ over all things. But He's also planned to the most minute, minute detail every single step that will get to the end of God's plan. So well, how does that relate to prayer? Prayer is one of the clearest means that God has explicitly laid out for us in Scripture as a, as a means to the accomplishment of, of the end of His purposes. I might put it this way. The Bible teaches that God will only accomplish certain things through prayer. God will only accomplish certain things because of prayer. Let this truth bathe over you for a moment. And I hope you are thinking about your prayer life and our church's prayer life. God will only accomplish certain things through or because of prayer. God saved Jonah because of prayer. He saved Peter from prison through prayer. He gave Hannah a child through prayer. He sustained Jesus to the end through prayer. God has the power to make promises and plans and the power to keep them. We don't have that power. So we must pray for the Holy Spirit to help us continue on trusting and serving the Lord. Just as if we're a husband or a wife, we have to keep praying for the Holy Spirit's help to keep our wedding vows. Or if we're a friend, we need the Holy Spirit's help to keep our promises to our friends or our obligations to our employees. Or what about our covenant obligations as church members? If you joined this church, you signed a document called the Church Covenant. 
that lays out what we say, what we argue, captures the essence of the church's life together, a Christian's life in the context of a local church. The only problem is that we can't do any of those things in and of ourselves. We must pray. We must pray. Because we can't keep promises that we've made. God, however, not only has power to make promises, He has power to keep them. And that power is unleashed through prayer. So you know this. I think many of you really resonate with what I'm saying because you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and then things happened and you're like, how did that happen? There's no way to explain that thing that happened. And then I hope by God's grace and His kindness, He reminds you that you prayed. Not because you're awesome, but because you know you're only dependent on God. In our church and as individuals, we have to devote ourselves to prayer because some things aren't going to happen unless we pray. So if we really want lost people to know Jesus, but we aren't praying about that, then we don't really want lost people to know Jesus. If we want healthy churches to spring up around our country and around Dallas-Fort Worth, but we never pray towards that end, we don't really want that. We just say we want that. If we want our marriages to be faithful and strong and our children to come to know Jesus, if we want sin to increasingly be unattractive to us and Jesus be increasingly beautiful to us, but we aren't ever praying for that stuff, then that's just lips, lips speak. Prayer is the engine of our faith. Prayer is, prayer is a demonstration of faith because in prayer you're literally saying, I can't do this. God, you have to do this. What else would we call that but faith? So as individuals, as a church, we must devote ourselves to, pr to prayer. Brothers and sisters, if you're a member of this church, I strongly encourage you to print out the member directory and pray daily for members of the church. You're like, John, I don't know how to do that. Well, come grab me after the service. I'd be happy to show you how to do that. You can pray with people even after service. I think it's really great when I, I love it and I look over and I see someone just praying for someone w what if that became more normal in our gatherings and after our gatherings before our gatherings or during the week over coffee or lunch or whatever we're praying for one another because we know that we can't do anything without God during our services we spend perhaps to many an unusual amount of time in prayer why? Not because we want to promote our righteousness. We don't have any. Because we really believe that God can do the impossible. We, we devote so much time in our services to, to prayer because we believe in providence. Not in spite of it. Not in spite of our belief of providence. In other words, when you heard Jared pray earlier for the president of our country and for our evangelism and for the spread of the gospel among unreached people groups, the reason we pray that kind of prayer is because we know we can't do those things. That only God can do those things. Providence doesn't negate prayer. The Bible teaches that prayer is a means of providence. This servant prays repeatedly and this servant believes that God has a plan that's already settled before it's revealed. We pray because we believe in providence, not in spite of it. 
Now this servant doesn't want to stay much longer, but the family is like, no, you need to stay at least 10 more days. The servant says, no, I need to go now. He's intent on leaving quickly. So they, they, uh, they say, well, Re- Rebecca, what do you think? What do you think, Rebecca? And look at her response again in verse 58. Will you go with this man? She said, I will go, indicating her trust in the Lord, in his plan, in his providence. Like Abraham, she's willing to leave her family and country to follow the Lord into the unknown. And then as she's leaving, the family speaks this blessing over her. Verse 60, they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may our offspring May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. That sounds a lot like the blessing prayed over her soon-to-be husband Isaac back in 22.17 where the angel of the Lord says, Surely I will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So the same blessing is given to Isaac and Rebekah indicating that this covenant that God made with Abraham is now continuing with Isaac and Rebekah. God's covenant love is passing from Abraham to Isaac because he keeps his promises generationally. And the servant, the servant takes Rebekah, rides back to the land of Canaan, arrives there, and introduces Rebekah to Isaac. Verse 67, as I said earlier, lets us know that Rebekah is taking the place of Sarah as the mother of Israel. The seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent is continuing and it will continue through Rebekah. God's appointment has been fulfilled. He appointed Rebekah to this role and Rebekah now is in this role as the new mother of Israel and is able to comfort Isaac after his mother's death. So God appoints Rebekah to continue the line of the seed of the woman. I wonder if you remember later in the Bible another story where the Lord selects another young woman, another virgin, to advance the cause of the seed of the woman. You remember Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel was sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. And as Rebecca said, I will go. Do you remember what Mary said? Mary said to the angel, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So the son born to Mary was going to be the seed of the woman who God sent to save, not just Israel, but anyone who believes in him, fulfilling God's promises to Abraham that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there are indications and connections between Genesis 24 and the gospel story. Genesis 24, some have said is a love story. That last verse says Isaac loved Rebekah. It's really a story of God's providence, but we could call it a love story, I guess, if we want. But it certainly points forward to another love story. Another story where a father sends a servant to secure a bride from a foreign land to give to his son. A story where the bride is then led on an exodus by imitating the faith of Abraham. Because of her faith, she inherits the promises given to Abraham. Then this wife is given to the son, and the son loves her and makes his home with her. God's providence ensures the accomplishment of His promises in Genesis 24 and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and in our lives. God will see to it that every detail and every decision work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Now I want to close on this note because I know many of us are facing many things that are very difficult. And we just sang a song this morning on purpose called, uh, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. That's a song about the providence of God. It simply states that we believe that God's plan is right, even if we don't understand what's going on. But this story in the gospel teaches us that the father always knows what is best for his son. The father always knows what is best for his sons and daughters. You remember that line in the song? Our father's care is round me there. I love that picture. And many of us may not have grown up with a father who just enveloped us with his care and his joy and his delight. You may not have had that story. But in Christ, you can be drawn into that story. You can have a father who's just surrounding you with care. Not with criticism. Not with, man, come on, get your act together. Not with shame and constant berating or abandonment or abuse. In the gospel, you can have a father who surrounds you and just picks you up with his big strong arms and gives you care upon care upon care. I wonder if you've had that. I wonder if you have that in Christ. In Christ, our sins are removed and we're adopted into the arms of God. Do you have that? Are you resting in that? Does that change anything about you? How does that make you think about the really painful things that you're facing? You know, maybe you're just like, well, that's the devil. Well, maybe it is. But guess who's stronger than the devil? God. Well, that's the world. Well, maybe it is the world. Well, that's just my, that's just my boss. He's just a jerk. You know, that's just, all, okay, maybe it is those things. But the explanation behind all those explanations, that there's a Father in heaven who loves you, and He wants good for you. He wants to chisel you and shape you more and more and more into the image of Christ. The only way that happens is if He sometimes turns the heat up underneath our lives to purify us. Our Father's care is around us every day and everywhere because the Father knows what's best for His sons and daughters. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your word. Help us by your spirit to understand it, believe it, obey it, live it out, share it with others. Take your word and plant it deep in our hearts, Father. We need you. Thank you for being a God who is in control and not just sitting back and waiting to see how things will happen. Thank you for being a God who has purposes, good purposes in our life. Thank you for being a Father who envelops us with your care, who knows what we need before we even ask you. And just as we saw many times, answers our prayer before we're even done praying. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for being a God of providence. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you. Help us to live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.